iTunes presents Meet the Author. Hello, I'm here in a recording studio in Los Angeles with George R.R. R. Martin, the author of the epic fantasy series A Song of Ice and Fire. George is also an award-winning writer of short fiction in a variety of genres, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror, as well as the editor and creator of the Wild Cards series of stories, and a former writer-producer in the television industry who worked on The Twilight Zone and The Beauty and the Beast. We're here today because George is recording pieces for Dream Songs, which is essentially a collection of short stories from the past 30-plus years some well-known and some not as well-known. The collection also includes quite a bit of autobiographical material, which George reads himself. Welcome, George. How's the recording going so far? Well, it's it's done. I'm uh, pleased to say at least my part of it is done. I, I recorded all the, uh, the commentaries over the past two days here in Woodland Hills. So uh, now I get to go home and uh, to turn the rest of it, the reading of the actual stories, over to uh, the pros, uh, actual actors and uh, professional audiobook readers who I think will do a, probably a much more professional job than I would have. <laughs> do you have much of a role in the work that they do? Do you um, talk to them about pronunciation or characterization? Uh, no, not really. Um, occasionally on, on previous audiobooks um, – They've consulted me about some pronunciations, so if I'm asked a question, I, I answer it. But uh, other than that, no. I, I live in New Mexico, so I'm there's quite a physical distance between me and them. So it has to be sort of a special uh, special query to uh, shut down recording and call me up and so forth. I have some role in the uh, selection of the readers. You know, I have certain actors that I've worked with before, uh, or who have read my material before for audiobooks or for some other medium. Uh, that I've enjoyed working with, and I occasionally recommend them for roles. But uh, for the most part, I leave this to the uh, the good people with books on tape who uh, who do this all the time and have a lot more expertise in the field than I do. Um, do you find that some of your fans are audiobook only fans, or do you think that people that listen to audiobooks are doing so as a supplemental experience to reading the book? Well, I think there's some of both. The vast majority of my fans read the books in book form. I, I mean, I know that from the uh, from my royalty statements. I can look at how many copies of the book sold as to how many compared to how many copies of the audio book sold, and there's quite a quite a difference. And it's still slanted heavily in favor of the uh, the printed material. But I do get emails from people whose familiarity with the book is from uh, is from audio books. In some cases. There are people who are prevented from reading by some handicap. I have uh, blind readers who uh, rely on recordings to make uh, the whole world of literature available to to them. Also, uh, dyslexic readers who uh, maybe have trouble reading a, a printed book but enjoy stories just as well if they can get them in the audiobook form. Also, more and more, there's people who tell me at least that they simply don't have time to read. They have a very high-pressure job. They have a family, perhaps, when they get home from their job. They have to spend all their time with their with their family, doing things about the house. They don't have the uh, the leisure to read, so they rely on audiobooks during the commute to work. That becomes their reading time. They have an hour drive. They plug in an audiobook in their car, 
and that's how they keep up with uh, reading. So any way you do it is fine with me. Uh, although, I mean, for my part, I couldn't imagine not having time to read. I'm a, such a – long before I was a writer, I was a voracious reader and I still am. When were you first drawn to the science fiction and fantasy genre? Oh, when I was a kid. I mean, I think as a writer, you always – you write what you read. Mm-hmm. So the material you read is, and when you're young is uh, certainly going to be part of uh, what you then uh, write later on. And as a kid, I loved science fiction, fantasy, what my father called it all weird stuff. He didn't make the distinction between science fiction, fantasy, and horror, the various subgenres, but spaceships and monsters and superheroes and all of that kind of good stuff. Uh, I, I was a kid growing up in Bayonne, New Jersey in the 1950s. Um, we lived in the projects. We did not own a car. So the world that I lived in was of necessity a very small world. It was largely limited to the places that I could walk from 1st Street up to 5th Street. You know, I could see Staten Island across the way, but I never actually went there or very seldom went there. Books opened up new universes to me. With books, I could, I could go to other planets. I could go to other times in history, to the to the age of the knights, to the old west with the cowboys and the Indians, to uh, deserted castles haunted by ghosts and shambling monsters. And all of this was a lot more exciting than Bayonne, New Jersey, in 1958. Say so, uh, I became, uh, I think, addicted to books at a very early age. I mean. Virtually all my family, if they reminisce about these days, it's always, oh, yes, and Georgie had his nose in a book. He always had his nose in a book, and it was true. I took books with me everywhere I went. We'd go to a Christmas dinner at my grandmother's house, and I'd have a book with me. And we'd go to visit some friends of my parents, and I'd have a book with me. So, And uh, comic books too, right? Comic books, yes. Yes. I, I thought it was actually comic books that probably made me a reader when I was even younger than – that when I was just in first grade and second grade and things like that and you're, you're first learning to read. Of course, what they taught you to read with in those days was these books about Dick and Jane. You're younger than me. I don't know if you got Dick I've and Jane. <laughs> but uh, Dick and Jane and their little dog Spot. There was Sally too. She was the younger. There was a fa- they were like a suburban family of three, Dick and Jane and Sally and they had the dog Spot and it was all like run Spot, run, see Spot, run. Look, Sally, spot run, you know. It was – even at the age of six, I thought this was incredibly tedious and stupid stuff. Uh, Dick and Jane did not interest me and little Sally did not interest me. And the world that they lived in, which was a kind of suburban world where everybody lived, it was like a father's knows best world, you know. Everybody had their own little house and everything was, was brightly colored and they were, you know, playing on their lawn and all that. It bore no relation to the industrial world of Bayonne, New Jersey, where me and my friends were going out and playing stickball in the streets between as car, ducking cars as they came along and, uh, you know, living in the projects and uh, – sounds a little more interesting. It was more interesting and, uh, you know, Dick and Jane and Sally were so boring. I mean, I, I don't know if I ever would have read if it was left to them. But fortunately, I discovered comic books around the same time and mm-hmm. Superman and Batman were a lot more interesting than Dick and Jane and Sally. So – Wherever I got the the basic tools of reading, the skill of deciphering words on a page, what actually drove me to read was with comic books and going and buying not just the superhero comic books but also, you know, kids' comic books like Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge and uh, 
funny comic books, Archie and uh, Cosmo the Merry Martian and you know there were all kinds of different comic books coming out. But I, I liked the superheroes best but I read all of them mm -hmm. uh, in those days. Comics were a lot broader field and they were cheap. They were only 10 cents. So uh, you could get you know one comic book or two Milky Way bars. Uh, and so I, I bought the comics. I read the comics and uh, that was part of what locked me into being a reader. And then uh, the fanzine came along. That was a little later. That was, uh, you know, when I was, uh, I guess it would be called junior high. We didn't really have junior high. We had grade school and then you went on to right to high school. But it was like seventh grade or eighth grade, I think, that uh, I had a letter published in Fantastic Four mm -hmm. and got a an actual uh, chain letter as a result because in those days they published your entire address there, which they don't do anymore. So you could just look and see the address of people and then you could write to them. So someone wrote to me with this chain letter scheme where if you sent a quarter off, you would get $64 in quarters and, uh, you know, when you send out four copies of the letter. Those things never work but I didn't know that. I was a kid in seventh grade and $64, that was all the money in the world. So I sent the quarter out and it turned out that the guy I sent it to uh, actually published a fanzine. So instead of just pocketing my quarter, he sent me a copy of his fanzine which was priced at a quarter. And I got my first comic fanzine, which was this little amateur magazine printed by a process called Ditto or Spirit Duplication, which involved trays and jelly and it produced a sort of faded purple print. But it was very cheap. Even high school kids could afford to make little magazines that way. Mm. And this whole world was growing up of comics fandom where they were eagerly discussing could the Justice League beat the Fantastic Four and, you know, who was better, Thor or Superman and other hot debates of the day and also publishing amateur comic strips and amateur stories, uh, stories told in prose. For those of us who couldn't draw, we couldn't do amateur comic strips because we couldn't draw the characters but we could write stories about superheroes and they were called text stories and that's what I started doing for the fanzine. Uh, my first actual stories were text stories for comic book fanzines. At what point did you go from writing those type of stories to thinking that um, you'd like to write for, for bigger magazines and, and then eventually books? Well, I, I think I was in high school when I started thinking that uh, maybe I'd like to be a writer. When I was a younger kid and I was reading all these things, what I wanted was to actually have these adventures. You know, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to uh, go to the moon and to Mars and to other stars. You know, but at some point I got old enough to realize, you know, number one, that probably wasn't going to happen in my lifetime. And number two, if it did happen, it wasn't going to happen to me. Uh, these astronauts were, were not uh, kids like me. They were uh, men of a very different temperament and the chances of me actually qualifying to be an astronaut were not good. But I loved the worlds. I loved the things that these books talk you to. So I thought, well, maybe I can – I'm good at making up stories. Maybe I can make up uh, some, of these, uh, some of these stories and make a living that way. And I wrote some stories for the, the comic fanzines and, and they were published. Uh, they were terrible for the most part. But I suppose they were pretty good for a high school kid mm -hmm. and the fanzines were glad to have them and as they were published, I got praise which brought me a little conf more confidence and the more praise I got, the more confidence I got to try it. And it did, you know, dance in the back of my head. Maybe maybe this is something I could do. Although even, even in high school, I was aware that it was a very difficult profession to make a living in. At one point, I recall in my junior or senior year, one of my teachers gave us an assignment to uh, 
research whatever profession we intended to follow when we uh, graduated college. I was at a prep school, so it was assumed we were all going to college. And of course, most of the kids in the class researched, uh, you know, being engineers or being teachers or being whatever their dream was to be. And I researched being a, a fiction writer and was appalled when I discovered uh, by my researches that the average fiction writer made $1,200 a year from his fiction. Now, of course, this was in 1965 or so. So $1,200 a year was somewhat more than it is today, but it still wasn't very much even in 1965. So at that point, I said, well, maybe I will write stories, but uh, I won't uh, – that won't be my profession. I'll have to have something else that I can do. Uh, and then when I went on to college, I decided that journalism would be the thing. So I was – in college, I was actually a, a journalism major, figuring I would uh, – you know, work for newspapers and magazines and write stories on the side. There were plenty of precedents for that in science fiction. There were people like uh, Clifford Simak, who had been a, a newspaper man his entire life and his entire body of work had been written nights and weekends just sort of as a hobby while his actual profession was uh, being a journalist. And all this time you were writing and, and submitting stories when you had time. I believe you uh, said that there was one story that you submitted in resubmitted, I believe it was 40, 42 times before it was finally accepted? Yeah, something like that. Um, I didn't write as much as I should have. I mean, even during those days, I was always conscious, I've got to write more. I've got to produce more. I'm not producing enough. When I was in college, I tried to take courses that would, uh, where writing fiction would be part of the coursework. You know, so I took courses in creative writing. And even in some of my other courses, like a history course I took in Scandinavian history, I convinced the professor that I could do a piece of historical fiction instead of a term paper, and he allowed that. So I was always trying to sneak in something where I could write a story and get academic credit for it, and then I would have a story that I could send out to the magazines. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I would picked up from my, uh, my researchers and my reading was that you had to, to make a living in, in this field uh, to sell your stories, you had to keep sending them out. So I had Writer's Market and Writer's Yearbook and the various other little professional publications that listed all the markets. And when I finished a story, I would send it out. I knew how to do it with a double-spaced manuscript and you know, keep a carbon copy, stamp self-addressed return envelope, all of the usual uh, professional steps in those days. So I would send it out to a market and it would come back with a rejection slip and I would uh, ready a new envelope and send it out again the same day usually. And some of my early stories that I wrote in college uh, did indeed accumulate many, many rejections over the years. So where does this perseverance come from? I, I don't know. You just have to do it. I mean, that was one of the things I got from those uh, books I'd read and uh, researches I'd done about how to become a writer. You have to forget about the story that you've already written. I mean, if it comes back with a rejection and you agonize over it or you put it in a drawer because it's not good enough or something like that, uh, you're never going to get anywhere. Hmm. So that editor didn't think it was good enough. The next editor perhaps would. So send it out again and maybe we'll concentrate on a new story that you're writing. And that really was the, uh, was the only way to do it and it always worked for me. What moment did you know that you were a writer, that you had made it and that this was the right profession for you? I think it was the uh, 1971, the summer of 1971. I'd sold a couple stories by then to professional markets and I'd 
graduated college. Indeed, I'd done a year of graduate work, and I'd gotten a master's degree from uh, Northwestern University. And I expected to take a job as a journalist and sort of begin my real life in June of 1971 when I got my master's. I mean, I'd done very well in school. I'd had a prestigious internship in Washington, D.C. I had both a bachelor's and a master's. My grades were very good. I figured I'd have my choice of many job offers. And indeed, the class of 1970, uh, you know, the class before mine, had indeed gotten a lot of job offers. But there was a downturn in the journalism market between 70 and 71. So as a result, I actually couldn't get a job in 1971. Despite all my credentials and my great grades and all that, I couldn't find an entry-level job in journalism. I sent out hundreds of applications. I did interviews. I mean, I was at Northwestern University. They have a great journalism school. They would bring in all these newspapers from across the country that would do interviews with graduates and people were being hired, but not me. So I wound up actually having to go back and live in my parents' house despite having my college degrees, and I had to accept the same job that I'd worked all through college as a summer job. I had to do that for yet another summer, but for half the pay <laughs> because it was uh, working for the Bayonne Department of Parks and Recreation as a sports writer, and they'd had budget cuts, and they couldn't afford to pay me what they'd paid me the last three summers. So I'm doing the same job I'd done before for half the pay but the same amount of work half the time. But I had sold a couple stories my graduate year. It had two sales when that summer began. And I said to myself, you know, if you're really serious about this writing fiction thing, you got to write some stories. I mean, you're writing like one story a year, two stories a year. This isn't going to be uh, enough. You can't make a living for that. Even uh, in those days, there were more markets for short fiction than there are today, and they paid better. But even then, they didn't pay a lot. You know, to make any sort of significant money, you had to sell a lot of stories. So I resolved that summer that I would write every day for half the day until I had to go to the parks department thing. So I got up every morning. I had my coffee. I had my breakfast. I sat to work on the table. I had to go to work at like 1 o'clock. So I had all morning from like 9 to 12.30, and it was just a couple blocks walk to work. And I worked every day, and I finished seven stories during that summer. Basically, I finished a story every two weeks. It was the most productive period I'd ever had in my life till then. And ultimately, all seven of those stories sold. Now, some of them took years to sell. Some of them didn't sell until five years later, and they got like 30 rejections. But a couple of them sold right off the bat on the first submission or the second or third. And one of them was an analog cover story. One of them became my first Hugo nomination. Um, so the stories I wrote there in the summer of 1971 were really the turning point for me. I think after that, I knew I was a writer. Many of the stories in Dream Songs show this quality as well, as do the stories in A Song of Ice and Fire. Your characters um, never seem to be black and white. There's no true heroes. The villains often have redeeming qualities. Why do you write about your characters in such a way? Well, it reflects, you know, the writer has an obligation to tell the truth as he sees it. And when I look around at real people, you don't want your characters to be cardboard cutouts. You want them to be as human and fully fleshed and real as you can possibly make it. And I look around at the world around me and read history and psychology. You know, there are no pure heroes. There are no pure villains. Everybody, everybody is a mixture. All of us are human. We all have uh, angels inside us and we all have demons inside us. We're all part 
Dr. Jekyll and part Mr. Hyde, you know. Uh, Hitler loved dogs, <laughs> but he was still Hitler. But but he loved dogs, you know. It was, and to my mind, that's far more interesting. I mean, characters painted in shades of gray are far more interesting than the uh, pure black or the pure white hero. None of us are, are pure black or pure white. People do great things and then the next week they'll do something appalling. Um, why? I mean, that's the interesting thing, to explore what makes us human, to explore the nature of being human and the choices that all of us make every day. That kind of stuff has fascinates me and has always fascinated me. Who are some of your favorite characters? What, from my own work or from sure. no, literature? From, well, <laughs> let's, let's do a couple of from both. Well, to get into my favorite character from literature, you have to get into like my favorite books. And there's so many, it's hard to pick a few. But Lord of the Rings, of course, is a book that has had immense, immense impact on me. I read that in junior high school and um, – it was like entering another world. It was a reading experience like I'd never had before. and It almost made me actually give up wanting to be a writer because I read that and I said, I, I can never match what this guy is doing. It's so, it's so amazing. And I've reread it many times since. But when I look at that, even in that book, my favorite characters are the gray characters. I mean, I think Boromir is a fascinating character um, because he's conflicted. He's torn. I mean, his motives are good. He wants to save his people. He wants to protect his country. And yet that drives him to potentially do an appalling thing. And yet then at the end, he redeems himself. He gives his life in an act of heroic self-sacrifice. So he's a character who's wonderfully colored in, in shades of gray and has that level of complexity around him. Um, Strider was another character that I found interesting. And actually, I find him more interesting as Strider in the beginning of the book then later when he becomes more Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and he's more the, the perfect prince. I like the more conflicted, scruffier kind of ranger side of his personality. To get away from science fiction fantasy, The Great Gatsby is one of my favorite books. I mean, Gatsby is another marvelous character. The levels that he embodies there, the striving to be you know, someone born to a certain lot in life but dreaming of something better. He's the one of the great archetypical dreamers in all of literature. But he can never quite reach what he's dreaming for. I mean, that symbol at the end of the book, the green light at the end of Daisy's dock, uh, that, that he can see but he can't quite reach, it's, uh, to my mind, that's very moving. My own characters? Well, uh, Vice and Fire, my favorite character is Tyrion. But to tell you the truth, I love them all. I mean, the way I write my characters, I, my viewpoint characters in particular, I really have to get inside their head. I'm seeing the world as they see it, trying to think as they would think, not being an authorial god sitting above them and making judgments. I have to suspend my judgment and get inside their head so their actions seem motivated and seem to be actually the things that they would do under those circumstances and I have to understand them. And all of that requires, I think, a certain amount of empathy for them. So it doesn't matter whether I'm writing about Cersei or Theon or one of the characters who might not be considered a, a good character or whatever. While I'm inside them, I am them to an extent and there's a certain amount of affection there. Is there any one character that is no longer with us that you miss more than, than another? You know, I miss all my dead characters. <laughs> um, it's hard to kill them. They are like your children. You know, there's a story in Dreams called Portraits of His Children. And that's the last story in the book, actually. 
and I arranged it that way quite deliberately. It's not the last story chronologically, but it's the story that most epitomizes, I think, the relationship between a writer and his characters. And to a great extent, they actually do feel like your your children. You name a chapter in Dream Songs, The Heart in Conflict. Where does that phrase come from and, and what does it mean? The phrase derives from William Faulkner and his uh, – when he was given the Nobel Prize for Literature, uh, his acceptance speech, which is easily available on the internet. If anybody wants to Google it, they can see the entire text of the speech. But the heart of it was that Faulkner said that the only thing worth writing about was the heart in conflict with itself. And I think that's true. You know, science fiction in particular, which is a field I've been associated with over the years, is often called a literature of ideas. And there are some hardcore science fiction fans and readers who seem to think that makes it different from uh, other fields of literature in some fundamental way. And I don't agree with that. I think all literature has ideas. The Great Gatsby has many ideas in it. They don't have to be ideas about the boiling point of water and you know how a pulsar works, or you know whether you could build a Dyson sphere or not, or a new way to get from one star to another. Those are ideas, but those are not the only kinds of ideas. Ideas about the human condition and love and God and sex and all of these things are also ideas. But the truth is. Fiction is not a good is not a good vehicle for presenting abstract ideas. I mean, nonfiction journalism, my profession in which I have my professional degrees, is actually a better way to explicate. And if you have an idea about some political or scientific method, that's why the scientific journals are full of research reports. They're not full of science fiction stories. What fiction is good about is presenting emotion. Fiction is good about replicating the human experience and uh, giving us that. And the human heart and conflict is central to all of that. If the story you're telling me doesn't have characters in it that I care about in a situation that's going to engage my emotions, uh, I'm not going to find it very interesting. Also in that chapter, you mentioned something you call the furniture rules as you're comparing the different genres, sci-fi, horror, yes, and fantasy. Yes. You know, I sold my first story in 1970. It appeared in 1971. So I've been at this quite a few years now. And as a kid, I read Robert A. Heinlein. I read H.P. Lovecraft. I read Robert E. Howard, J.R. Tolkien. Today, we put those writers in different categories. I mean, Heinlein is science fiction. Howard and Tolkien are fantasy. Um, H.P. Lovecraft is horror. They're distinct genres, they're distinct marketing labels, they're in different sections of the bookstore. That wasn't really true when I was a kid. They were all, my father called it all weird stuff. And, you know, I could read Lovecraft one day and Heinlein the next day. I didn't see any conflict there. It was all kind of the, the stuff that I was interested in. It all engaged my imagination. As I have written, as I've become a writer in later life, I've written in all of these genres. And I've mixed and matched those genres to produce some strange sort of hybrids where, where I've done a science fiction horror story, a number of them, and a historical horror story, mixing historical fiction with horror. And Ice and Fire, in some senses, is a mixture of traditional fantasy tropes with some of the tropes and feelings of historical fiction. So I've never been a big fan of genre boundaries. But I see more and more 
in modern publishing, people erecting these boundaries between them. Publishers seem to want that. I see young writers being forced, if they want to write both science fiction and fantasy, to adopt different pseudonyms for each. So they have like a science fiction byline and a fantasy byline because they don't want to confuse the reader as to what you write. I see magazines that say, well, we only publish science fiction. We don't want to read fantasy. Awards, you know, every time a fantasy gets nominated for Hugo, there's always some idiots who come out of the woodwork and say, this is a science fiction award. Why is this fantasy being up? Get it out of here. You know, but of course, that I mean, not only are they narrow-minded, but they're pig ignorant because the Hugo Award, if you go all the way back to its origins in 1952 or whenever, was always intended to include both science fiction and fantasy and for that matter, horror, I think. And this stuff drives me crazy. In recent years, fantasy has become much more popular than science fiction. To my mind, this is just cyclical. It was just a reverse when I was breaking in. Back in the 70s, the 60s and the 70s, science fiction was much more popular than fantasy. You could hardly find any fantasy. These days, fantasy outsells science fiction. Someday, it will probably reverse again or horror will come along and outsell all of them or who the hell knows? There are these trends in that. But to my mind, it doesn't matter. It's all imaginative literature. And yet you see some people, and it particularly seems to come from the science fiction side, who really feel that these two things are antithetical who will say that, oh, well, science fiction is rigorous and logical and uh, its precious bodily fluids should be pure and fantasy is this mind stuff that will rot your mind and all that. And I think that argument is tripe. I think these are basically two flavors of imaginative literature and all that matters is the furniture. Ultimately, whether we're writing about castles or spaceships or vampires, it's still the human heart in conflict with itself that matters. And the rest of it is just uh, set dressing, furniture, what have you. Um, you're, you're a frequent attendee at book signings, at comic cons, cons around the world. You have a blog or not a blog. You started a podcast. It seems like you really make an effort to connect with your fans. Well, I love my fans. It's great to have readers. Sure. You know? I mean, I've been at this since 1971, and I'm by no means, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling, who was a gigantic international success immediately. Mind you, I've always done pretty well. I mean, I sold my stories at quite an early age, but I've had downtimes in my careers. I've had novels that sold poorly. I've gone through periods where no one wanted to buy my work. I've done my share of book signings on back in the 70s and 80s where you show up at a mall and you sit for an hour and five people show up and you're happy because five people showed up because you were afraid that no one was going to show up. So when you have that in your background, I think it makes you more appreciative when the success does come as it's come for me recently that, you know, it's exhausting admittedly but it's also very gratifying to show up at a book signing and there are hundreds of people there. There's people bursting out of the aisles. There's so many people that the bookstore doesn't know where to put them all and you're signing for hours and you know you get hot and sweaty and tired and you know your voice gives out on you and your hand is starting to cramp by the end but it's still – the adrenaline is going because uh, you have this, this huge crowd of people responding to your work. You know, George and I just had lunch, and uh, George, you mentioned that you're actually doing a book signing from New Mexico, and the the signing itself is taking place in New York. Yes, in a, in uh, a few weeks at the uh, Book Expo, 
We're still working out the details of it, but I'm going to be using a device called the Long Pen, where I basically will be signing on a tablet from my home in New Mexico, and a robot in New York City will be replicating the uh, the signature on books placed before it. So I'd like to see that happen. <laughs> And speaking of success, your series has been picked up by HBO. Uh, yes. Have they started casting yet? Oh, no. That's way premature. I mean, at this stage, we just have an option. They've taken an option on the books and uh, they've hired some screenwriters and will be developing a pilot script for Game of Thrones. I mean, ultimately, the plan would be to make uh, a 12-hour series season out of each of the novels. So Game of Thrones would be the first 12 hours and then we do – a year later, 12 hours for Clash of Kings, etc. But none of that is certain. First, they'll write a, a pilot script. We've got the screenwriters hired, a couple great guys named uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. And they'll be writing the screenplay. And HBO, of course, will look at it and give notes and have them rewrite it. And they'll do that. And eventually, at some point, they'll decide whether or not to actually film it or not. So casting is many, many, many money months off if it comes at all. Do you ever think about what actors you might like to play some of your characters? You know, I have over the years, but, you know, it changes. And, uh, of course, Game of Thrones came out in 1996. So if you had interviewed me in 1996, I could have told you half a dozen actors to, who I would have loved to have seen in the parts. But they're all too old now for the parts because the characters are still the same age as they were in 1996. But the actors are considerably older, particularly the children. And many of the parts in the book are the Stark kids who are young. So, you know, by the time we get around to filming, who the hell knows uh, who would be uh, appropriate for these roles. Bran and Rickon might be in uh, diapers still. Right uh, that's right. That's right. You know, the, the fans like to uh, play casting games, and my fans and readers have started many uh, discussions over the years, uh, have written me letters about cast for the movie or the television show, as, as it may be. But inevitably, they always cast it with all-stars approach, you know. It would be the most expensive movie or television show ever made in human history if we got the uh, the, the people that the fans have suggested, because it's like a, a major star at every role, no matter how minor. So you wrote for Hollywood for about 10 years? Yeah, roughly 1985 through 1995. I worked on uh, Twilight Zone, the Twilight Zone revival, uh, Beauty and the Beast for the first five years. And then I went into uh, development, as it's sometimes called, or development hell, as it's also known in the industry, where I was uh, writing pilots, writing feature films, doing um, overall deals, development deals, where I was signed by a studio to invent shows for them. It was lucrative and it was exciting, but I ultimately I, I couldn't take it anymore because especially the development part of it. I actually enjoyed the first part earlier because those shows were – Beauty and the Beast and Twilight Zone were actually shows on the air. So no matter how much stress you go through, how much rewriting you have to do, at the end of the day, they have to shoot it because they have to put something on on next Tuesday. Uh, when you get into development, you have all the stress, but you don't get the the cookie at the end. I mean, it's just endless rewrites and changes and meetings with studio brass, and then they decide not to do it. And then you start with another one all over again. And after five years of it, I couldn't take it anymore. You know, the money was good, but ultimately, I need an audience. I don't want to write for four guys in a room. Hmm. Did that experience have any impact or influence on your writing? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, in some ways, I think 
Of course, every experience you have impacts your writing because it changes who you are. You are the sum of your experiences in a certain sense. In terms specifically of my craft, I think uh, my years in Hollywood gave me a stronger sense of structure and certainly a better ear for dialogue because those are the two most crucial things in doing screenplays or teleplays, dialogue and structure. Um, you have a really nice passage in uh, Dream Songs about fantasy that I'd like to uh, conclude this talk with, if you uh, sure. wouldn't mind. I will find it here in the book and give it a crack. I originally wrote this for uh, to accompany a photograph of myself in a book called uh, The Faces of Fantasy, which was a book of photographs by Patty Perret of uh, famous fantasy writers. Uh, had a portrait of each of us and a few thoughts on writing or fantasy or whatever. So uh, this is what I wrote to accompany my photograph in that volume. The best fantasy is written in the language of dreams. It is alive as dreams are alive, more real than real, for a moment at least, that long magic moment before we wake. Fantasy is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Reality is plywood and plastic, done up in mud-brown and olive-drab. Fantasy tastes of habaneros and honey, cinnamon and cloves, rare red meat and wines as sweet as summer. Reality is beans and tofu and ashes at the end. Reality is the strip malls of Burbank, the smokestacks of Cleveland, a parking garage in Newark. Fantasy is the towers of Minas Tirith, the ancient stones of Gormengast, the halls of Camelot. Fantasy flies on the wings of Icarus, reality on Southwest Airlines. Why do our dreams become so much smaller when they finally come true? We read fantasy to find the colors again, I think, to taste strong spices and hear the song the sirens sang. There is something old and true in fantasy that speaks to something deep within us, to the child who dreamt that one day he would hunt the forests of the night and feast beneath the hollow hills and find a love to last forever somewhere south of Oz and north of Shangri-La. They can keep their heaven. When I die, I'd sooner go to Middle-earth. Thank you, George. Thanks. It was fun, Rob. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.